We are in seven chapters of Job today. So as we move through Job, but we're going to be focusing in mostly on Job chapter 28. So if you want to turn anywhere, we're going to look at a few other passages, but primarily on Job 28 today. Um, so we'll read those passages as we go through, and uh, let's begin with a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you, as always, for giving us the scriptures and making us your people. You've brought us to the book of Job again this morning to learn more about suffering and foolishness and wisdom. So teach us what wisdom is, why it's important, and where we can find it. Keep us from our own folly and protect us from the falsehoods of the world. So build our faith, give us your wisdom, and help us to learn from you this morning. And so we pray, speak through the story of a man called Job. By the power of the Holy Spirit, help us see Jesus. For in his name we pray, amen and amen. Everyone suffers. And I think we all get that. Live long enough and you'll say goodbye to a dream, you'll lose a friendship, you'll bury a loved one. Suffering hurts a lot. That's why it's called suffering. We don't like it, we usually hate it. And yet we can almost accept that suffering is part and parcel of the ordinary struggles of life until it seems like there is nothing ordinary about it. Because there's suffering, and then there's Job-like catastrophe and loss. That's what our brothers and sisters are facing at Covenant Presbyterian Church this morning and at the Covenant School in Nashville. I won't retell the tragedy or recount the horror of Monday morning. You know what happened, and for everyone in that community, they will never forget. And what lies ahead for uh, the church, the school, the kids, the parents, the grandparents, the siblings, the pastors, the staff, the family, the friends, is a long road that no one wants to travel. That road will mean grief, pain, anger, confusion, and sorrows untold. And yet as Christians, we also dare to believe that there will be, in time, unspeakable comfort, unexplained hope, and the blessing of the light of God's countenance, a divine and supernatural light that sometimes can only be seen from the darkness of the deepest well. Every Christian has said this before. Millions will say it again uh, this morning. I believe in God the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. Some of us can recite it in our sleep, which is probably good because lying awake in the terror of the night is when we may need that truth the most. God is an almighty Father. That's not just something. That's everything. For comfort, there's no better explanation of the first line of the Apostles' Creed than that which comes from the Heidelberg Catechism, in this case, question 26. What do you believe when you say, I believe in God the Father Almighty? And the answer is, all of this. I trust God so much that I do not doubt he will provide whatever I need for body and soul and will turn to my good whatever adversity he sends upon me in this sad world that really true? Can we really count on such a promise? And the answer is yes. A thousand times yes. That answer actually continues, 
God is able to do this because he is almighty God and he desires to do this because he is a faithful father. In times like this, we need the whole Bible with all the depth of Christ's sympathy and all the height of God's loving care. We need to know that God never leaves us or forsakes us. We need to know that nothing can ever separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. We need to know that the story doesn't end with Joseph in prison or Jonah in the whale or Jesus in the tomb. And we need to know that after every cruciform Monday, that Sunday's coming. Especially when we've suffered Job-like catastrophe and loss. When people you know are suffering like Job, then Job is a good place to go to learn how to respond. And in God's providential care, Job is where we're at this morning. Not everyone likes the book of Job. But when you're knee-deep in tragedy, then you begin to understand why God gave us this book. Now, most of the passage today is devoted to Job's final reply. There's six chapters of his last words to his friends. But before we turn to Job's reply, our friend Bildad makes one last attempt at setting Job straight. And so we start with Job 25 and Bildad's omission. Look there with me for a moment. Bildad essentially tells us two things. They're both sound and orthodox and actually wonderfully precious. First, Bildad reminds Job that God is utterly transcendent and glorious. Starting at verse 2. Dominion and fear are with God. He makes peace in his high heaven. Is there any number to his armies? Upon whom does his light not arise? And Bildad's right. God is mighty and vast and immense and utterly and gloriously transcendent. God is not like us. He is wholly other. But then the second thing that he reminds Job about, equally important and equally true, is that people are totally depraved. God is utterly transcendent and people are totally depraved. Verse 4. How then can man be in the right before God? How can he who is born of woman be pure? Behold, even the moon is not bright and the stars are not pure in his eyes. How much less man who is a maggot and the son of man who is a worm. So not only is God utterly transcendent, every person is a guilty sinner, totally depraved. So what's the problem? It's not what he says. What he says is right. The problem is what he doesn't say. Bildad commits the sin of omission. He leaves out vital truths for Job and for us that we badly need to hear. Never more so than one unexplainable suffering begins to etch itself on our hearts. And the result of Bildad's point of view, it's a pretty depressing view of reality. God is utterly transcendent, which means, of course, you can't possibly get to him. And people are totally depraved, so why would he ever condescend to care about us in the first place? But what has he left out? Bildad has no room for rescue. There's no place for redemption. There's no category for that divine love 
that reaches down to the weak and the guilty and the helpless and delivers them. And so Bildad's theology sort of collapses into this dreadful kind of fatalism. And we've all seen that happen. We've seen that sort of pessimism in friends and family as the darkness of depression and suffering kind of closes over their heads. Perhaps sometimes some of us, some of you, may have even seen it in yourselves. Things are bad. Nothing's going to change. It's hopeless. God doesn't even want me, and I don't blame him. Why would he? I'm not worth it. Is that your inner narrative? Is that what you say to yourself? Is that what you say about yourself? Not everybody's willing to admit that. You may believe in the doctrine of uh, uh, divine transcendence, and you may confess an orthodox doctrine of God along with a clear view of the depravity and wickedness of the human heart. But if those are the only truths you know, then you're going to suffer because you have no hope. But if along with the transcendence of God and the depravity of man, you have an equally clear view of the love of God, you'll be able to say with uh, uh, Jack Miller, good news, you're worse than you think and more loved than you ever imagined. You can despair of your situation without despairing of life altogether because you can anchor your hope in the God who loves you despite you in his Son, our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. The truths that Bildad brings up end up failing Job because they're partial truths. He leaves out what Job really needs, and that's hope. So once again, Job feels forced to respond. Today's passage could be called Job's closing argument. He's been engaged in a series of discussions with his three friends, Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar. And they have been relentless in their attempts to correct what they perceive to be Job's dreadful sin In their understanding, it's the cause of his suffering. Job, however, has been steadfastly protesting his innocence. And we know that Job's right. And so we now come to the last of Job's responses to his friend. It is his closing argument, chapters 26 to 31. And we don't have time to read all that, and we'll survey it, but we're really going to focus in on chapter 28, which is the high point of his argument. So let's back up a little and start by looking at his insistence on his integrity. The chapters 26 and 27, Job's integrity. If you look over uh, these chapters, you may notice they continue the argument that we've already heard. These are familiar arguments on the lips of Job. In chapter 27, Job declares his determination to maintain his integrity. Starting at verse 2. As God lives, who has taken away my right, and the Almighty, who has made my soul bitter, as long as my breath is in me and the Spirit of God is in my nostrils, my lips will not speak falsehood, and my tongue will not utter deceit. Far be it from me to say that you are right. Till I die, I will not put away my integrity from me. I hold fast my righteousness 
and will not let it go. My heart does not reproach me for any of my days. So we have dealt for several weeks now on this interchange between Job, who's in the midst of his suffering, and his three friends. And we've had plenty of opportunities to evaluate the differences uh, between them. And hopefully you're coming to realize there's something distinctive about Job. Something stands out. Placed alongside Eliphaz and Bildad and Zophar, there is a qualitative difference in Job. In the midst of this terrible suffering, personal attack, daily pain, Job has weathered the storm with extraordinary poise and resilience. And here in Job's closing arguments, we're going to learn where that poise, where that resilience comes from, because we need to know for ourselves. You know, how is it, uh, Job, that though your world has collapsed around you and you suffer through such uh, dreadful misery, how is it that you maintain your integrity and your faith when everyone around you is opposing you and your suffering is so great? And that's not an academic question. <coughs> For some of you here, it may be a question you desperately need an answer to. And we'll see that in chapter 28. But before we get there, I want to jump ahead and cover the end of the chapter very quickly, which deals with Job's defense. Job 29 to 31. Job's defense. We know that Job is innocent. He continues to maintain his innocence. He's resolved to uphold his integrity. And now Job is reflecting not so much on his own character as he is upon the calamity that has come upon him. And he thinks about all the, how, how good things were before the disaster struck. So look at chapter 29, again, verses 2 through 6. Oh, that I were as in the months of old, as in the days when God watched over me, when his lamp shone upon my head and by his light I walked through darkness, as I was in my prime, when the friendship of God was upon my tent, when the Almighty was yet with me, when my children were all around me, when my steps were washed with butter and the rock poured out for me streams of oil. He's longing for everything to be as it once was, before such suffering came upon him and began to eat away at him. He goes on down to, uh, jumping down to verse 18. Then I thought, I shall die in my nest and I shall multiply my days as the sand. My roots spread out to the waters with, all the dew, with the dew all night on my branches, my glory fresh with me, and my bow ever new in my hand. And then he finishes, verse 28, I live like a king among his troops, like one who comforts mourners. Remembering the good old days, when everything was well. But then we take a dramatic turn in chapter 30 which shows us, by way of contrast, how dreadful things have become in comparison, starting at verse 1. But now they laugh at me, men who are younger than I, whose fathers I would have disdained to set with the dogs of my flock. Verse 10, they abhor me, they keep aloof from me, they do not hesitate to spit at the sight of me. Verse 13, they break up my path, they promote my calamity, they need no one to help them. 
And then finally to verse 16, And now my soul is poured out within me. Days of affliction have taken hold of me. The night racks my bones, and the pain that gnaws me takes no rest. With great force my garment is disfigured. It binds me about like the collar of my tunic. God has cast me into the mire, and I have become like dust and ashes. So we went from, it used to be great in chapter 29, to now it's all terrible in chapter 30. And what's left to say? Well, in chapter 31, Job sort of wraps it all up. What he says, in effect, is, if I'm guilty of specific sin, well then, let me be punished. But I'm not guilty of the sins that you, my three friends, have been accusing me of. Therefore, I should receive justice, and I should be delivered. That's his basic argument. He's still suffering. He still wants justice. He still has questions. He still laments his present circumstances. And he still mourns his losses. And it's all very familiar. This is what we've heard Job say all along. And now he's driving the point home in his own defense one last time. But then, right in the middle of it all, in chapter 28, there sounds a completely different note. It's as though someone has stopped him and asked him to reveal the source of his faith in the midst of such tragedy. Chapter 28 is a bit like uh, the calm in the middle of the storm. The other chapters were all swirling around it. They ring with notes of lament and frustration and grief. But here, Job is measured and reflective. It's a meditation on the subject and the source of wisdom. And so we come to chapter 28, Job's wisdom. And this is what Job has that Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar lack. And in many ways, this is what the book of Job is really all about. It's about getting wisdom. How will you persevere through trials? How will you endure when your questions go unanswered? In the face of inexplicable suffering, what's Job's secret? Well, the biblical answer is wisdom. Job perseveres through wisdom, and you will persevere through wisdom. So let's look here at chapter 28, starting in verse 1. We see that wisdom is worth searching for. Wisdom is worth searching for. Job is going to paint a vivid picture of people digging for precious metals or gemstones in the depths of a mine. Starting at verse 1. Surely there is a mine for silver and a place for gold that they refine. Iron is taken out of the earth and copper is smelted from the ore. So we're in the mining business now. And for the next uh, eight verses, he pictures us tunneling in every secret place, putting an end to the darkness, digging into forgotten places. And he's using the image of mining as a metaphor for the search for wisdom. The darkness and the isolation are apt images, considering Job's own search for wisdom has taken place in the midst of dreadful isolation and in the darkness of his own terrible suffering. He feels like he has been toiling away uh, down in a deep, dark mine shaft of suffering and loss. 
Wisdom, Job is saying, doesn't come easy. And yet we're hardwired to seek for it. We know that's how you put an end to the darkness. We search for it, even to the outer limits of gloom and deep darkness. And Job says we can't help ourselves. We're made to know things, to understand things. And sometimes Christians feel like faith ought to mean that we never ask any questions. That somehow it's an expression of unbelief to try to understand what doesn't seem to make sense to us. But Job knows that we're made to ask questions. We're made to seek understanding and to pursue wisdom. And there's no question uh, that you cannot ask. And there's no answer that you may not pursue. All truth is God's truth and we ought not to be afraid of it. And so by using this mining image... Job is telling us that for all the pain and toil and darkness and isolation, the search for wisdom is nevertheless precious. It's worth it. It's valuable. It's priceless. Job is suggesting we keep looking for the answers. We keep pursuing understanding because wisdom is worth searching for. But Job is also bluntly honest. And so he also admits that wisdom is hard to find. Wisdom is hard to find. All metaphors break down eventually. And the problem with Job's mining metaphor is, unlike precious stones that can be chiseled from the face of the rock, wisdom doesn't come quite so easily. Starting at verse 12. But where shall wisdom be found? And where is the place of understanding? Man does not know its worth, and it is not found in the land of the living. He says, we settle far too often for half-baked answers and counterfeit solutions. There's no gold or silver or precious stones in the world that can purchase it. Wisdom cannot be bought. In other words, having been down in the deep mine shaft of suffering in the search for wisdom, Job says it's not really found there. And so he asks his question again, now to verse 20. From where then... Does wisdom come? And where is the place of understanding? It is hidden from the eyes of all living and concealed from the birds of the air. Because wisdom is elusive. You can't uncover it through your own natural effort or by throwing enough money at a problem in an effort to buy wisdom for yourself. It says wisdom is worth searching for, but it is hard to find. And we cannot, by reason alone, trace it out or find its origins. He says it's hidden from the eyes of the living. And later he says, death and hell say they've barely heard of it. And you won't find wisdom there. So what do we do? Well, very often it's the Apostle Paul who comes to our rescue, and that is the case today. In 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 2, he makes a very similar point. Speaking about God's wisdom, he says, 1 Corinthians 2.14, The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him. And he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. So like Job before, Paul's point is that apart from God, human reason can't grasp the things of God. God's ways make no sense to us if we stand outside of a relationship by faith in the Lord Jesus and away from the power of the Holy Spirit. And so until the Spirit of God takes a hold of your life and opens your eyes, Christian faith and the sovereignty of God and the brokenness of the world and the reality of sin and all of that 
will make no sense to us. It will be folly to us, foolishness, because it's spiritually discerned. And sin has warped our thinking and our thinkers, our knowing and our knowers, the way we reason and the reason we engage with. And it's all been so twisted by sin that we never come to the right conclusions about God and the world unless and until we bend the knee to Jesus and by his spirit have our discernment reset. That's why suffering as a non-Christian is so difficult and so hopeless. Every one of us will endure suffering. Every one of us is part of the human condition. But how can you endure it without wisdom? How much more miserable will your suffering be without Jesus? For someone who's not a believer, when Job-like trials come and you find yourself uh, throwing your why questions at the heavens... You simply don't have the spiritual discernment to begin comprehending God's answers. And so if we're to learn Job's secret, we need to learn that grasping uh, the wisdom of God is a thing we can't do on our own. But it is a thing, mercifully, that God can give to us. Because wisdom is a gift of God. Wisdom is is a gift of God. That's the message we find at the end of chapter 28. Wisdom's worth searching for. Wisdom is hard to find. But thankfully, wisdom is a gift that God can give to us. Which means we shouldn't be surprised when we have to live with unanswered questions. When the answer to why, why am I suffering? Why hasn't it changed? Why do I find myself in this trial still? Why am I here yet again? When the answer to why doesn't come, We may have to learn to live with unanswered questions because we either don't have the ability to handle it or to understand it. And a lot of that is recognizing that we're the creatures and he's the creator. That creator-creature distinction is critical and at the end of the book, God's going to make that very clear to Job and to his friends. And yet sometimes we feel entitled to an explanation. At least I do. Hopefully I'm not the only one. Sometimes God is kind to us and he gives us something of an explanation. We get to see some of the reasons for the trials we endure. And we're comforted and strengthened and helped when he does that. But we're only creatures and we can't possibly grasp all of the multifaceted uh, intricacies of the wisdom and the purposes of God. And so when we come up against the limits of our understanding and our questions still remain unanswered, when God does not condescend to explain himself to us, remembering that God must be God and that we are merely his creatures ought to teach us humility. It should help us to say, I may never understand, but I can learn to rest in the goodness of a God who does. And that is enough. I may never understand, but I'm only a creature, and he is my creator and master and king, and I will trust him. And that is enough. Very much along the lines with what John prayed for us earlier. At some point, God is enough. And then this chapter ends, what I think is a wonderful note of grace. 
Wisdom's worth searching for, but it's hard to find. And yet, unlike us, God has perfect, uh, comprehensive wisdom and knowledge. And so he stoops down and tells us where true wisdom comes from. Verse 28. And he said to man, Behold, the fear of the Lord, that is wisdom. And to turn away from evil is understanding. That sounds familiar. We find those verses echoed in Proverbs. Proverbs 1.7, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. Again, in Proverbs 9, verse 10, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom and the knowledge of the Holy One is insight. Now, the fear of the Lord is an admittedly difficult concept for us at times, but it's worth uh, wrestling with because it's the primary Old Testament way of describing a believer's relationship to God. It means something like uh, reverent, awe, and dependent trust. It's reverence for someone that we love so much that we bristle whenever a word is spoken against them. That's the fear of the Lord. We revere his name. The reverence that we have for him, the trust uh, that we have as we serve him. And Job is telling us, and, and God is telling Job, that this kind of fear, the fear of the Lord, that's real wisdom. The only kind of wisdom that any one of us can ever hope for. Not comprehensive wisdom, God alone has that, but real wisdom. So what's the relationship between fearing God and being wise? Well, Job doesn't really explain it. So there's a lot of things Job doesn't explain. And so to answer that, we need to turn back to the New Testament, going again to the Apostle Paul. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, Paul says true wisdom is found exclusively in God's provision for us in his Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. He says, 1 Corinthians 1, verses 30 and 31, And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that, as it is written, let the one who boasts boast in the Lord. Jesus is God's comprehensive answer. Look inside yourself and you'll quickly realize that the answers aren't found there. You look around at the world and the answers will elude you there too. But you look to Christ and there's no lack in Christ. Christ Jesus is the wisdom of God and you're only wise as you trust in him. God alone possesses complete wisdom. And yet you can find real wisdom in the fear of the Lord. He is the beginning, middle, and end of the Christian life. Christ is the righteousness you need to overwrite your record of unrighteousness. He is the sanctification that you need to transform your life from the inside out. He is the redemption that you need to set you free from sin, both here and now, and from death hereafter. Christ is everything you need. You may be scared of the future. You may not understand the present. You may be haunted uh, by the past. And sometimes you feel like you don't know which way is up. And you may feel like you're stuck down in that mine, seeking diamonds of wisdom but finding only shadows. And Job is telling us, it's the fear of the Lord, that's wisdom. Now some may be thinking, okay, whatever. It's not a bad word when it's used in the right way. I want to read you something. It was written in April of 2020. 
the school administrator, right in the middle of the COVID lockdown. You all remember the lockdown with fond memories, I'm sure. But this is what was written, again, a school administrator. This morning, I spent some time talking to God about this past week. And a particular word came to mind, which is a typical outcome in my conversations with God. The word of the week is whatever. Hold on, not so fast. This is not the whatever you may be thinking about. This is not the whatever that punctuates frustrating conversations. This is not the whatever of the middle schooler not wanting to continue the conversation. We've come to expect this word to be a response to something we don't like but can't avoid. But what I heard is an entirely different case of whatever. The word whatever occurs over 170 times in the scriptures, usually indicating wholehearted commitment and obedience to do whatever God asks of us. God tells us that whatever we ask in his name, we will be given. In Psalm 1, the one whose delight is in the Lord is depicted as being like a tree planted by a stream, and whatever this person does prospers. Perhaps the clearest depiction of whatever is in the book of Philippians. Whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, these are the things in which God wants us to dwell. Paul goes on to say he has learned to be content whatever the circumstances. Daily I need to open my heart to whatever. Whatever God has for our school, whatever the duration of our distance learning, whatever the trials we're having to endure, we still believe we are still faithful. We will still love him wholeheartedly. Whatever difficulties or blessings are evident in our homes, we will seek to do the next right thing. With hands open to whatever, we will make good decisions, we will construct good plans, and we will seek to do whatever pleases God. When will we open again? What will our end-of-year celebrations look like? Will we get to experience our traditions again this year? There's no one who wants to come back more than I do, yet whatever the rest of the year holds, we will work to meet each other's needs, to love each other well, and to prepare our students faithfully. I invite you to join me in a wholehearted and active pursuit of whatever. That's wisdom. That was written three years ago by Dr. Catherine, Dr. Catherine Kuntz, the head of school at the Covenant School in Nashville. Last Sunday, she was in a PCA church worshiping her Lord. On Monday, she went to be with that same Savior, She loved while protecting the children she loved. This Wednesday, she will be buried by the Reverend John Bourgeois, her pastor and one of my former students. The events of this week have rocked us all. Grief has gripped our entire denomination. In shock, men and women gathered this week and this day to pray, as we did earlier. Dr. George Grant reminded us this week we, don't not need, we do not need to ask, why did this have to happen, and why did this have to happen to us? We know why. It was for precisely this sort of calamity that Jesus came in the first place. He came to deliver us from our sin and the corruption of this valley of tears. Moreover, he comforts us in our pain and sorrow. 
just hours after the shooting, Pastor Chad Scruggs spoke of his beloved daughter, Hallie, expressing both the hope and comfort of the gospel. Through tears, we trust she is in the arms of Jesus who will raise her to life once again. As the Heidelberg Catechism so beautifully declares, we'll read it for our profession of faith this morning during communion. This is indeed our only comfort in life and in death. That I am not my own, but belong body and soul in life and in death to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. No matter what we affirm about God's sovereignty, the scriptures warn us against reckless and cold explanations of suffering. Lest we forget, Job's friends were not very friendly, nor were they helpful, especially in moments of suffering when we recognize that life is not the way it's supposed to be. Writing about his own grief following the death of his wife, C.S. Lewis said, there's nothing left to do with suffering except to suffer it. Especially in those moments when it feels like our sorrows will never end and the voice of evil has drowned out everything else. But we know this is not true. Though we cannot and should not give pat answers to Monday's tragedy. As Christians, we know that there's more to the story of this world than its sin and suffering. This coming week, Christians around the world will rehearse our living hope, which has been secured by our Savior Jesus. Through his atoning death and resurrection, Jesus vanquished the foes of sickness, sorrow, pain, sin, and death. Now, no matter how harsh the moment, Believers live on the risen side of Easter. And even if we can't feel the reality of that hope in this moment, it's important that we acknowledge to one another that our faith is anchored in the salvation that's given to us by our suffering Savior, King Jesus. This is what Christians do in suffering. We remind each other there's a better word coming, and it will at the end be spoken to us by our returning king. As Job himself has taught us in Job 19.25, for I know that my Redeemer lives, and at the last he will stand upon the earth. And in the midst of any and all suffering, that is where hope is found. And in finding him, we find wisdom. You need to pray. Take a moment to do that, and then I'll close. This past Wednesday night, one of my students said he watched one of our services online, and he really liked that I asked you all to pray at the end of the sermon uh, because it gave the musicians time to get on stage, and he's a musician. And he's like, most of the time, I'm running down there. I don't have enough time. So he was thanking me, not that you were praying, but that he had time to get on stage. So I thought it was pretty funny. Let's pray. Our Lord and our God, thank you that you have spoken to us once again by your Son. Open our eyes that we might see our sin and then see our Savior. God, our Father, we bow before you and we confess our foolishness to you how we turn every which way in the search for wisdom, but too often fail to go to the one place it may be found, to the Lord Jesus. 
Forgive us for our neglect of him. Forgive us when our minds have been filled with promises of answers that our world offers, but which prove to be false again and again. Forgive us for our failure to know and to trust and obey your word. Lord, we do believe. Help our unbelief. And so, Lord, if anyone here this morning is overwhelmed by the struggles of life, by suffering, by fear, by falsehood, enable them to draw near to you so that you will draw near to them and build their faith and bring them to Jesus where they may find true wisdom. And so work in each of our hearts as we learn from a man called Job. Draw us ever closer to the one who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, and draw us ever closer to him, to your Son, our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen and amen.